Is with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Have you ever struggled with motivation? What do I need in order to... What kind of motivation do I need in order to make this thing happen? Sometimes we struggle with motivation because we are careless. Sometimes we're complacent. Sometimes we're ignorant. And so as a result, we find ourselves not doing what we know we should be doing. So the question that I've asked myself, and I hope that you'll ask yourself tonight, is how do we, where do we get our motivation from? God gives us commands to obey Him, and if He has given us commands to obey Him, then where does that motivation come from? I mean, you think of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. You're all there. You're waiting for me to turn now. Romans chapter 8, you think of the Apostle Paul who's enduring such physical torture. And I think of myself in that situation, and I think, how can this guy continue to go on? I would easily give up by now. I mean, in one, at one point, he was at the town of uh, Lystra or Derby, one of the two. They beat him so badly that they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city thinking that was, he was dead. And the next day, he got up and started preaching again. This guy had just been stoned. You could imagine all the welts on his head and, and on his body. And he gets up and, and continues to preach the gospel. What is this guy living on? Where does he get his energy and his motivation to do something that the world will look at as completely foolish? Where does that motivation come from? This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, his, his focus was not on this, his current sufferings, was it? His focus was on something greater, on his future glory. When God would bestow on him a grace that is unlike anything we've experienced in this lifetime. And so, Paul, so uh, Paul could have that motivation because he was not focused on his current sufferings. And that is what we find in the book of 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, if you would, please, where we find our passage that we will be studying tonight. And I want you to see that our motivation to abide in Christ comes from the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, the current, present grace that we have in Jesus Christ, and the future grace that we will receive, or we could say the future hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's read together 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 28. John writes, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears... We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself 
just as he is pure. There are three main topics in this passage that we should see. The first thing that we'll look at is our present grace. Those who are in Christ have a present grace that God has, in the words of verse 1, bestowed on us a love to the point where we are called children of God. The second thing that we'll see is our future hope or our future grace. We will be like Christ one day because we will see him as he is. And the third thing that we'll look at is our responsibility. If we do have this motivation, then we should respond with faith in Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to abide in him. And we see that most explicitly in verse 28. That is, I think, the central command in this passage. Look at verse 28. It says, Now little children, abide in him. That is the command, and we'll see it stated in several other ways as we go through, but that'll be uh, down the road. So I want you to see that grace that we have and the future hope that we have are the motivation for what we need, are the motivation that we need in order to abide now. The first thing that we want to look at is, is our present grace, the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, and that's found in verses 29 and chapter 3 and verse 1. Verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. John begins with, with our connection to Christ. This is our grace. This is the great thing that we can be motivated by, that God has done something for us. That we have an alien righteousness, as I mentioned this morning. It's not something that's based on what we do. It's not something that, that we have to make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row so that we are living perfectly before God. Rather, the reason that we can stand rightly before God is only because Jesus Christ stands in our place. It is that alien righteousness or that alien worth. We don't deserve anything on our own, do we? All that we deserve because of our lifestyle and because of our sin is God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment to be poured out on us. And the way that many people will suffer that ju- for that judgment, or during that ju- judgment, is by suffering in an eternal hell. And the great news that we have, though, as believers, is that Jesus Christ has stood in our place. He has stood as our advocate, our representative, so that when God looks at us, he does not look at us as a worthless creature, which we are. He looks us at us, as we'll see, as his child. He looks at us with favor because he is looking at Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ took upon himself the wrath that we deserve, the judgment that we deserved. And he also not only took, took the judgment that we should have taken... But he also took, we were able to take his righteousness and put it to our account. So now that we're not just forgiven of our sin, we also have a perfect standing before God. So that now we can stand righteously. And that should give us motivation to serve him, our connection to Christ. Romans chapter 12, Paul states it this way. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Why, Paul, would I ever give my body as a living sacrifice? 
I would never do that, Paul. Why would I do that? Paul tells us, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God. You see, in chapters 1 of Romans through 11, he had been talking about how God had taken us who were worthy of his judgment and how he had saved us. And then in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, See all those things I was talking about? The great mercy that we have in Jesus Christ? Now, we should be willing to offer our bodies as sacrifices. Why? Because God is gracious. We can never repay God for what he has done. But the least we can do is give our bodies as a living sacrifice. Give them to God whatever he wants us to do with our bodies, we should be willing to do. That should be our motivation. If God is righteous, as we see there in verse 29, it says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And the reason that I say that this is God that John is speaking about is because at the end of the verse it says, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The scriptures never talk about believers being born of Christ. We are made into the image of Christ, but we are not born of Christ. We are born of God. And so that's why I say when they use this pronoun he, if you know that he is righteous, and then and you know that the one who practices righteousness is born of him, those two pronouns are both referring to God. So if God is righteous, then we as his children should manifest that righteousness in our lives. Wouldn't you expect that if... If a husband and a wife come together and they have a child, wouldn't you expect that child to have the same characteristics as his or her parents? You would expect that. And we see that every time we have a legitimate child born, don't we? And the point here is that if we have been born of God, if we are legitimate children of God, then we should practice righteousness. Why? Because He is righteous. We should reflect the character of our Father. And our connection to Christ is also shown in, our, in God's love for us. Verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. God's love was most clearly shown to us when He sent His Son to die for us. Turn over to chapter 4 of First John chapter 4, and we'll see how this love was displayed. John is telling the believers here in chapter 4 that they should love one another. And if they want an example of how to love, there's no better example than Jesus Christ. Verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation simply means the satisfaction of God's wrath. That is the best display of love there possibly could be. The one that we have in Jesus Christ, where He gave His life. There's no greater love than this than a man lays down his life for his friend. And that's what Jesus did. He laid his life down for you and me. And if that's not motivation enough for us to serve him, then uh, John gives us another reason 
later on. John calls us uh, children of God in verse 1. He says, See how great a love the Father... But we're back at chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. The great part about this verse is that not only are we called children of God, but John follows it up by saying, and such we are. It's not that people just call us the children of God. It's not that we just have the name only, but we actually are the children of God. God adopts us as his children. And now we become part of God's family. And that is something that should motivate us as well. And that's why John continually calls us people who are born of him. You'll see that phrase throughout the, the uh, book of 1 John. Many people receive the love of God. Even unbelievers receive the love of God, don't they? But nobody receives the love of God like believers. God bestows on believers a special love. A special love that, that allows them to receive benefits that unbelievers cannot receive. And one of those one of the great ones, probably the greatest one, is our connection to Jesus Christ. Now we stand amazed um, because we can stand before God completely righteous because of Jesus Christ. But not only do we see our connection to Christ in our present grace, but we also see the world's disconnection with us. And that's also found in verse 1. It says, the second half of the verse says, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him the world does not know us when we become a believer we are given a new nature with heavenly origin it's something that really is out of this world and so we should display a lifestyle like that of our savior like that of our father and as a result we are completely in many ways foreign to the world in which we live in we're foreign we're foreigners, we're strangers, and the, the scriptures talk about us in this way. We are aliens. And the reason we are this way is because we are like our Savior. Jesus says, The world the reason that they hated you, John chapter fifteen, verse eighteen, the reason they hated you was because they hated me first. So if you feel like you're out of place in this world, that is that is should be the, the feeling that all believers should have. That you do not feel comfortable in this world because this is not our home. We are aliens. We are strangers. We are foreigners to what the world offers. And we saw last week, that, or two weeks ago, that the, the world is basically that system of evil which is opposed to God. I'm not speaking of the physical earth here. Okay? I'm not speaking of the idea that we're from Mars or something like that. But it's the idea that we... We are different from the world. The world is completely opposed to God. They stand in opposition to Him. And they hate Him. We are, we are not like that. We love God. We follow Him. And so our objection may be, well, you know, I'm a child of God, and I recognize that Jesus Christ have, has saved me, and I appreciate God's grace, but it's still difficult. How do I get through these tough times in life? Well, I would suggest to you that you need to take your eyes off of your present sufferings. Take your eyes off of your trials. And that is exactly what Paul did and what John is recommending. That we find our motivation not in ourselves, 
not in in the circumstances around us, not even in the people around us, but in our grace, the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. But not only that, he moves on and he talks about our future grace or our hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This is first seen in verse 28. Verse 28 says, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, notice that's future, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. There are two reasons that we should focus our, our future hope on our final salvation. There's three basic aspects of salvation. Okay? There's initial salvation where God saves us. He, draw, he pulls us out of the world. He draws us to Jesus Christ. That's initial, initial sanctification or initial salvation. Then there's this continuing act of salvation where God continues to make us like Jesus Christ, but it doesn't culminate until we get to this last aspect when we are in glory. This is called final sanctification or final salvation, where finally we will be conformed to the image of Christ. We will not be marred by the sin that so easily besets us. We will not be marred by all the problems and the struggles that we have in this world. We will one day be conformed to the image of Christ, and that is what John is telling us to focus on. Not on our current situation, not on our surroundings, our trials that are, that are um, attacking us, or the temptations, but on our final salvation. And the two reasons that we should focus on our final salvation is, number one, so that we will stand unashamed before Christ. Verse 28 says, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away at his coming. Why would a person lack confidence at the coming of the Lord? Why would they stand before God and be ashamed, turn their head away in shame? Because they were not abiding in him. Look at the verse the first part of that verse. Now, little children, abide in him so that if we want to be able to stand unashamed before God, we should be abiding in him now. And so a person would not stand with confidence before the Lord because they lacked or they failed to abide. And that's why John says we must abide. The point is that we should be confident and unashamed now so that we will not be ashamed and lack confidence at his coming. So stand confidently in what Christ has done for you. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And I want to show you how Jesus Christ uses this idea to help motivate his disciples. He's speaking to the crowd along with his disciples in Mark chapter 8. And we come to verse 38, and Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Christ is basically saying, Be unashamed of me now. He's saying, you should not be ashamed of me. Be unashamed of me now so that I am not unashamed of you at my coming. 
Because those who are ashamed of me now, those who are ashamed of what I have to say, he says, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. And so John's motivation, or John's uh, key to our motivation here is that we should not be ashamed of what Christ has done. We should continue to abide in him. And if we want to be unashamed at his coming, then we should be unashamed at Jesus Christ now. Then we also see that not only that we, should, we will stand unashamed, but the other reason we should focus on our final salvation is so that we can recognize that we will be changed. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. One day, those of us who are believers will be made into the image of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. John says in verse 1 that we are called children of God because that is what we are, but that's not all that we are. That is not all that we will be. We are not simply children of God. We are actually going to be like Jesus Christ. This is even a step up from where we were. You see, God does forgive us. That's good. God calls us His children. That's better. God makes us into the image of Jesus Christ. There's nothing better than that. That is the best. And that is what we should be looking forward to. John says that we will be changed into his image. We are currently children of God, and God is constantly making us into the image of Christ, but only in a partial way. You see, because of our sin, we cannot be fully made into the image of Christ. We cannot fully remove all the sin from our life, can we? Sin will always be there at our door, tempting us and weighing us down from doing what God ultimately wants us to do. But one day it will not be like that. And we can take great joy that, that we will be like Christ if we know Him. It is not, we, we are children of God, but that's not all that we will be. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Paul says, It is a guarantee. If we are believers, we will be changed to be like Christ. But it's also promised by God in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says, Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We will finally be conformed to the image of, the son, of his Son. We will one day be able to shed this sinful body, to be able to put it away, to be able to leave it in the ground in a sense, so that we will be raised to newness of life. And that's because God has done a work in us. And so John says in verse 3 of chapter 3, this is our hope. He says it this way, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
John says that we can have hope. We should have hope. And this hope is not simply a wishful thinking. Oh, I hope I don't get a flat tire. Or I hope the Tigers make the playoffs. It's not that kind of hope. That is wishful thinking type of hope. This type of hope is referring to uh, uh, confidence. It's referring to a confident assurance that we have. In other words... I could say that I have confident assurance that this next step that I take on this platform, my foot will not go through it. That is confident assurance because I know that this platform has been built on a solid foundation. It's not a wishful thinking, oh, I hope. This hope is a confident assurance that we should have in Jesus Christ. And John is calling us to be confidently assured And if we have this confidence, then he says at the end of the verse that we will purify ourselves. It says, those who have this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In this passage, we've seen our motivation for abiding in Christ. One, that we should look to our present grace, what God has done for us. And also we should look, number two, at our future hope. Those are our motivations for service. But that... Uh, but John lists them in three ways. He tells us what we ought to do. He, his main statement, remember, in verse 28 is to abide in him. And then he breaks that down in three ways. He says um, that we are to practice righteousness in verse 28. Verse 1, I'm sorry, uh, practice righteousness, verse 29. We should, verse 1, recognize God's love. And then verse 3, purify ourselves. And so we find our responsibility to abide. If God has given us this motivation, what else should we do besides obey him and abide in him? The first way that John states it is in verse 29. He says that if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This is a good definition of what it means to abide in Christ. It is to practice righteousness. It is to make it the general pattern of our lives to obey God. A continual obedience. Obviously, there will be times when we fall. There will be times when we are held back because of our sin. But the general pattern should be that we practice righteousness. And that is what John is calling for. And he says that we know that those who practice righteousness are born of him because an unbeliever cannot practice righteousness. That's the point. It's, it's, it's like uh, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. He says, can a leper change his spots? No matter how much an unbeliever wants to, to do right, he cannot because he is under the slavery of sin. He is under the command of his father, Satan. That is what an unbeliever is like. And just as a leper cannot change its spot, neither can an unbeliever do righteousness, cannot practice righteousness. Every time they try to do something right, they do it with the wrong motive. They're not doing it to please God. They're not doing it for the reasons that the scriptures set up. They're doing it so they can uh, exalt themselves, so that they can um, advance themselves in life. And so the first way that John says that we should abide in him is by practicing righteousness. The second way is that we should recognize the greatness of God's love for us. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, 
See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. This is a command. See, or the word here basically has the idea of behold or take notice of how great the love of God is that we should be called children of God. We should recognize the love that God has for us. This is the love that he has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Are you amazed at God's love for you? Or do you think, well, you know, who wouldn't love a person like me? I mean, I don't blame God that he loves me. I'm a pretty good person. And even even, uh, since the time I was young, I've been a good person, so why wouldn't God love me? But when we make statements like that, when we ask questions like that, we reveal that we don't really understand what salvation is about. Because God is not about saving people who can save themselves, because no one can save themselves. No one can, can stand before God completely righteously. They cannot say, I've lived a perfect life, because no one has saved Jesus Christ. And so when we say things like, well, I wasn't that bad, so why wouldn't God love me? We don't recognize that we were actually enemies of God. And you may wonder why I constantly harp on that issue that we were enemies of God and that that we were in opposition to him. Why do I keep saying that over and over again? Are you trying to make me feel like a worthless person? And I would suggest to you, yes, I am. Because that is what the scriptures do. And if you don't understand your worthlessness before Jesus Christ, before God our Father, you cannot have true salvation. Because until you recognize that you can do nothing before a holy and righteous God, you will be condemned to hell forever, I'm sorry to say. You have to have an alien righteousness placed on your account. You have to have Jesus Christ stand in your place. Or you cannot stand righteously before God. And so, yes, we were worthless people before we were saved. We deserved nothing but God's wrath and his judgment. We might think, well, we don't really need God's help. We can do it on our own. We have enough worth on our own. But as I said, we do not have enough righteousness. We cannot because we sin. And God says that one, if we've committed one sin, that we're guilty of all of them. And because God is holy, he demands that, we make, that, that a payment be made for our sins, even if it's only one. And so there's two ways that, that that payment can be made. One is by us spending an eternity in hell forever. The other is by Jesus Christ placing his righteousness on our account. By Jesus Christ taking the wrath that should have gone to us and putting it on his shoulders. And I can gladly say before you that Jesus Christ, his atonement was sufficient for every single person to believe. And so I can confidently say that Christ will accept all those who repent and believe, who recognize that they were a sinner that they are a sinner, and that they need a Savior. We serve a great God, and if we are not amazed by God's love, either we think, uh, or either we don't understand the real 
uh, message of the gospel, or we, maybe we just think too highly of ourselves. The Christian life, however, is not about you. The Christian life is not about you. Did you know that? Turn to First, Ch- First Timothy chapter 1. Paul tells us what the Christian life is about. Because sometimes we think, yes, God, finally, you, you took care of me. You, you did this great thing for me. But the Christian life is not about us, even as believers. The Christian life is about Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16. 1 Timothy 1.16 Paul says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Why was Paul called out of such a wretched life? A man who was a persecutor of the church, transformed into a servant of Christ. Why, was he, why did that happen? He says, so that in me, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ would be able to demonstrate his perfect patience. And so when we see someone come out of the world and be saved into Jesus Christ, we should say, not what a great person that was. Wow, what a great thing you did by getting saved. No, what a great Savior. That Christ would save someone as worthless as this person as worthless as you and me. Why would he do that? Paul says, in order to display his great patience for us. That despite our worthlessness, our, our, our ashamed standing before God, he could display his perfect patience. And we should stand amazed when God brings a sinner to himself. When he draws someone to Jesus Christ. And sometimes we are amazed when people who are really wretched like Paul come to Christ. But, but then we think of ourselves and we think, well, we weren't as bad as Paul, so it's not that big of a deal. But what I'm trying to tell you is that our sin made us just as bad as Paul or any other wicked person who's ever lived. And deserved just as much punishment as any other person. And so when we look at our own salvation, it should do nothing but well up great joy within us of not what a great person we are, but what a great Savior we serve. That He would be willing to take such a worthless creature as us and draw us to Himself. And so John finishes up in verse 3, with the final way that we can abide in him, he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is not a command per se, but this is basically an appeal that we should be purifying ourselves. Now, this does not mean that we generate our own sanctification or that we generate our own cleansing, we get rid of our own sin. This simply means that the Holy Spirit is the one who does that sanctifying work in us. But he does not do it apart from, from our effort. He does not do it apart from the sanctifying grace that God gives to us and allows us to be changed as we understand the scriptures more clearly and as we follow them more faithfully. The purification process involves freedom, from the filth of sin. 
And so we could say, we could turn this verse around and basically say the same thing, that everyone who purifies himself, second half of the verse, will have this hope fixed on Jesus Christ. Those who purifies, purify themselves are the ones who have this hope. If we are abiding in Christ, you see this is, 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 a, um, is a give and take here. If we want to abide in Christ, we need to focus on our future hope. But when we abide in Christ, that hope becomes greater. Think about the Apostle Paul. The more difficult his circumstances became, the more things started to crush in around him. Think about how much more joyous his future looked. Because he had his eyes fixed on that goal. And as it became more difficult, that hope became greater. Same thing is true with us. As we fix our hope on what is, what is to come, we will abide in Him. And as we abide in Him, we will more readily fix our hope on what is to come. It's a cyclical relationship. And the way that we do this is by mimicking our Master, by mimicking our Father, being a reflector of the true light, as John likes to call it. Our ultimate hope in heaven should not be that we will be able to enjoy all the luxuries that God has prepared for us or all the great people that will be up there, but rather the great joy should be that we are with Jesus Christ and we are no longer harmed or marred by the sin of this world. And when we recognize this, we should say like Paul, This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, Reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of our high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Those who are abiding in Christ will fix their hope on the future, on what Christ will do for them, and on what they will be. So that when we are focused on that future goal, the things of this world, as the song says, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and focus on our Savior and what He has promised to offer us for the future. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, I'll read it for you. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. How do we do this, Paul? How do we deny all this ungodliness and, and all these desires that we have from this world? He says in verse 13, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul is saying we need to get our eyes off of our circumstances, off of our trials, as difficult as they may be, and get our eyes on the future prize, what lies ahead, forgetting those things which are behind. When we were in school, we looked forward to that graduation day, didn't we? We looked forward to it with great anticipation, knowing that that would be the end of a lot of trials in a, in a way. But it means graduation has some meaning to it, doesn't it? It means that by God's grace we have accomplished something. 
It means that by God's grace we have endured, endured all the way to the end. It means that we have grown in our knowledge and maturity by God's grace. However, there are several who sit in classes with us and just go through the motions and don't really learn anything. They just sit there. They never study. They claim to be a student, but they don't care about learning. And ultimately, we recognize that they don't really care about graduation. All they care about is their current satisfaction. And as we watch them and try to encourage them, we recognize something very profound. And although they're going through the motion, they will not ultimately make it to graduation, will they? Because they're not putting in the work. Those who are believers, those who are called the believe, the believers, will believe. They will, they will express their belief in Jesus Christ. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, then you will continue to believe, and you will continue all the way until the end, until Jesus Christ comes back. It's not simply going through the motions, because God has started that work in you, and he will complete it. Are you obeying God in your life so that at the time of our heavenly graduation, you will be able to stand unashamed in his presence? Or are you disobeying God in your life? Are you standing, or do you think that you will stand before God on the basis of your own good works? John is saying that will not get you anywhere. You have to recognize that it's all of Christ. And when God does that work in you, when he saves you, he will continue to do that work in you. By God's grace, we are, we are children of God, yes. But we're not all that we will be. And thank God we're not all that we could be. Think about well, what you could be if Jesus Christ did not save you. And when you do, you should say with John, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we're thankful for your word and how it instructs us and teaches us. We certainly do lack motivation in many areas of our lives. And sometimes it's hard to dig down deep and try to find what, it, what we need in order to follow you. But as believers, we recognize that our motivation lies in the grace that we have in Jesus Christ and the future grace promised to us through Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of our calling. We pray that you would be with anyone here who does not know you who is unsure of their relationship before you. We pray that you would draw them to yourself because we know that no one can come to you unless the Father draws him, unless you draw him. And so we're thankful uh, for this opportunity to study your word, and we pray that you would be with the reception to follow. We pray these things in the name of our great Savior. Amen.